Welcome to the Healing with Zenodyne podcast. I am your host, Garrett Ray. On this podcast, we will be talking with healers of all types, yoga instructors, science teachers, breath workers, life and wellness coaches, authors, you name it. If they are thinking about healing in the universe, we're going to talk to them. Today is our first episode, and it's going to be a little different. Instead, one of our team members is going to interview me. His name is Sahil Bhutani. He is a Taekwondo black belt and a physical trainer. I found this conversation very fruitful. I hope you do as well. Without further ado, I give you the Healing with Zenodyne podcast. Garrett, thank you for taking the time to do this amazing interview. I already know that it's going to be a really powerful conversation that we're about to witness, and I'm excited to just learn from you. I want to talk a little bit about like how we met. So, uh, we were in the middle of doing a sound healing event at High Yoga Naperville, and uh, right at that time, you you happened to just walk in uh, into that room, and uh, you just sat down and. Uh, you closed your eyes and you were just like in a, such a meditative yogi posture. And I just wanted to know, like, I mean, how were you feeling at that time? And what really attracted you to talking to us afterwards? <laughs> well, I had gone to yoga there pretty much every day uh, at three o'clock. And today I went at 10 o'clock. So it was a little synchronous to have me there at uh, a different time and meet you and Shivani. It was quite uh, quite wonderful. But when I walked past the window, I saw the crystal singing bowls and those things just, I don't believe that I could hear them through the door. I could just see them. And even looking at them felt like getting part of their power, you know. And so I immediately took an interest and Shivani saw me looking through the window and motioned for me to come in. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going in there. So I, uh, I put my stuff down and walked in and sat down and closed my eyes and had my first crystal singing bowl experience. Uh, you came over with a, a mat for me to lay on and ding the tuning forks in, in my ears. And that actually is specifically why I talked to you afterwards, because I was only there for five minutes. Then I went to my yoga class and afterwards I caught up with you guys and mentioned that I teach science to little kids and I've used two different note singing forks or tuning forks, uh, hit them on my knees and then put one note on either side of a child's head. And instead of a piano chord, which is two different notes mixing in the air and then both notes hit both ears uh, with the tuning forks, you get one note in each ear and it mixes in the middle of your head. So your, your brain does the work of making the chord rather than your eardrum hearing the chord in total. You know, and it's very special. It's, uh, it's very akin to binaural beats. And I figured I would pass it on to you. And then we started speaking and I realized you guys are both pretty neat and I'd like to get to know you better. So I invited you here to the recording studio to see if we could make uh, a singing bowl recording that was, you know, worth anything. And it turned out that we could. Now we've made five, six videos, uh, started a sound healing company called Zenodyne, and, you know, we're off to the races. Yeah, it was such an alignment. I mm -hmm. think uh, it was such a powerful interaction. And I, I was talking to Shivani, like, when you walked in, and I usually never say this, and I was like, I think a powerful energy has just walked into this room, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, we're, we just, I think it was just like a connection that uh, the universe just like made, and it was a really, really powerful connection. What we're doing is we're literally eliminating distraction. So how could we be really present and eliminate distraction? Well, the short answer is you don't get to. You're going to have distraction for the rest of your life. You make peace with it. That's what you do. Um, being fully present, I think, is somewhat of an illusion as well. It's similar to, I mean, I'm just having this thought now, but it's similar to approaching the speed of light in science. 
Uh, if you're going 1% of the speed of light, it's pretty easy to get going 2% and 3 I mean, it's still you, requires a lot of energy. But once you get up to 99.9% .9 the speed of light, it takes basically an infinite amount of energy to get that last little bit. And so all you can ever do is, even if you're just 99.9999999% the speed of light, you're still needing an infinite amount of energy to get that last little point zero 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 one. You know, so the best you can do is be 99.9999999% present. There's always going to be distractions around you, you know. Um, but the good news is being 50% present is a wonderful thing, you know. Um, one of the ways to be fully present is to train yourself, obviously. Um, the more you are aware of something, the more you can understand it. If you're not aware that the carpet is here, you can't begin to understand the carpet. You have to be aware of something before you can understand it. It has to enter your consciousness and be in there before you can start playing with it and finding out its rules. So the more you are aware of something, the more you can understand it. The more you understand something, the more satisfaction you can derive from it, from being with it. You know, We were having this conversation earlier about the being present in your automobile while it's moving. Uh, we talked about the pistons exploding and moving and turning this crankshaft, you know, and the crankshaft in turn turns axles, which are connected to differentials, which change the uh, degree of spin, and that spin goes to your wheels. But the thing that turns your wheels is that little explosion inside the engine, you know. And when you know that, and you hit the gas, and it goes, and each one of those is a tiny little explosion two feet from your, from your knees, that's exciting and wild. And if you're aware of it, and you understand it, then you can really appreciate it and then get your satisfaction from it, you know? Yeah. And that's that's how I stay present, is I, I learn. And then when I'm sitting with something like this microphone, this is really bizarre. I'm making sound waves with my vocal cords, the pressure of which hits this thing, shakes a little piece of metal magnet, and then that turns into an electrical pulse that goes through the wire and goes and gets stored as bits on my computer. It's fantastic. And the thing about being 100% present all the time um, the universe is so amazing that if you're 100% present all the time, I think that's almost akin to being hypnotized. You know, you are, if you're 100% present, your jaw should be on the floor in awe of your surroundings 100% of your life, you know. Wow. Where do you think, like, their present level is? I would say most psychedelic experiences, as compared with regular, like, getting a coffee from Starbucks experiences, if I had to just throw out a number, let's say... If you're checking your phone and checking your email, standing in line at Starbucks, you're 20% present. If you are having like a, whoa, my gosh, psychedelic experience, you bump that up to 70, 80%, you know? And then like the highest forms of meditation and true focus, possibly like the highest moments of love you feel, like romantic love or love for a child that you, you know, uh, I would say that's when you start to get up around the 90, 99% tile. Oh, so, like, a kid uh, has the ability to really, really put you at a present stage. I think the love that one feels for their child is akin to pure being purely present with the reality of how intense it is to have a little creation that they made running around, you know? Wow. I think that's, yeah, that's powerful. So why, why do you think, like, I mean, I know we, uh, I mean, why do you, why do you feel like, as a kid ages more and more and more, the amount of presence goes away. Uh, well, distraction goes up a lot. Um, <sighs> playing is inherently being present, I think, you know. 
I don't think playing has anything to do with the future, very little to do with the past. It is about taking this one moment to find joy. And that's almost all kids do, you know? They're either finding joy or they're in pain, both of which are very present uh, experiences, you know? So uh, I believe children learn to lie around three years old. That's the point at which they can conceive that there is something different going on in your mind than theirs, and that can be, like, manipulated. Prior to that, they just think, or I don't know if they think, but they act as though everybody has the same information in their mind. It's not like you have some. The experiment's pretty cool. They just show a two-year-old, like, a place where a coin is hidden under a box, and they show a little character and goes, that's Tommy's coin, and they take Tommy away, have, like... Becky come up and move the coin to the other box, bring Tommy back and go, where's Tommy going to look for the coin? The two-year-olds say the new box where the coin actually is because they think Tommy just knows. The three-year-olds recognize that Tommy's been deceived and Tommy still thinks that the coin is in the old box. So once you're able to, uh, once you're able to act as though there is other information in other people's minds and you start lying, I think that probably starts to do something to degrade your present focus. That's like, you know? yeah. I mean, if integrity, right? I feel like the person, when they start shifting from integrity, I think that's when the universe is like, all right, right. Uh, time to take some powers away from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I like it. Wow. Well, and when you start lying, that does extend into the future, you know, because there's wow. now, you know, you have to protect this secret now, you know, and that's like the opposite of play. <laughs> wow. So why does someone lie? Oh, because it's easy. I'm curious, I mean, could you tell me a little bit about your uh, mission here on Earth? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I do feel like if I was born to do something, it's to teach science to little kids. Uh, it's still the thing that comes most natural to me. It's the thing I have the most fun doing. Um, and I think it's the thing that people appreciate me for the best. You know, I've left concerts after playing music and had a bunch of people just be like, wow, I cannot believe how good that was. Thank you so much, you know. But when teachers and principals and parents tell me about how much they appreciate what I taught their child, those are the moments that fill me up. It's, that's what I was born to do. So uh, I've taught about 15,000 kids in the last 10 years or so. My children's book, Adams, or well, my children's song, Adams Are Everywhere, and my children's book, The Story of Circle and Square, both teach science and Adams to children. Um, and my goal, really, uh, my goal is to push the initiative Adams for Kids. That's my website, adamsforkids.com. And the goal is to have every five-year-old on the planet understand that they're made of atoms. If I can do that, I think that I will have done my work here on this planet. So that's really my mission. There's lots of other things I want to do. I want to help people heal. I want to play music for people and write music that makes people laugh and cry and feel connected to each other. Um, but my goal is to teach every five-year-old that they're made of atoms. And if they get upset or angry, at someone else, be it their parents or their mortal enemy, their mortal enemy is still made of atoms and deep down that they're the same shape, no matter how different they look on the outside. You, I think I think you're able to explain atoms better than most of the people I know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, if you were to explain atoms in like one to two sentences, how would you explain atoms? They're the Legos of the universe. <laughs> they're the little bitty building blocks. You know, the first Lego has one dot in the center. It's just a square with one dot. Yeah. The second Lego is a rectangle with two dots. Then you get a rectangle with three dots. Yeah. And then you start getting, like, bigger square. It goes one dot at a time, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, atoms go one dot at a time. The first smallest building block is a hydrogen atom. It has one proton in the center, one dot. 
the second atom's helium, it's got two dots. Lithium, beryllium, three dots, four dots, five dots, all the way up to like 127 dots. Uh, and those are all the building blocks to make stuff that you can touch. Wow. Yeah. Super interesting. It's cool. It's not. There's not a thousand of them. We've discovered like 130 about. I don't know where we're at now because we keep just smashing stuff together in a lab and adding energy and like creating a really random particle that doesn't exist anywhere else in the universe and it only exists for like one hundred thousandth of a second. That's how that's how much it doesn't want to exist. And we're just like, come on, ah, we got it. And then we put, throw it on the periodic table. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But um, yeah, that's, that's what atoms are. They are wonderful little things that kind of hold hands to build molecules. They're made of smaller pieces called subatomic particles, which are made of smaller pieces called quarks, which are made of spin, which is made of energy. And energy makes everything in the universe. So you got like four layers to go down from atoms to get to energy five layers to go down from molecules to get to energy, six layers to go down from cells to get to energy, seven layers to go down from like your organ to get to energy, eight layers to go down from your person. Yeah, that's, it's not that far. You're only eight layers away from pure energy. So once, once you're at your energy, that's like, what do you, what do you, what do you define energy? Energy is a disturbance in the force. <laughs> Star Wars joke. Um, <laughs> um, May the force be with you. So my arm is totally flat right now, right? Imagine that this is like the plane of the universe, like the just the flat piece of paper that the universe is, okay? It's totally flat. There's no energy in it. As soon as you put a little energy in, it just waves outwards, you know? This is no energy. You pick, put a little energy in at this end, and it's going to come back down, and then it's going to wave. So really, energy is like a disturbance. It's a potential, you know, a unit amount of what? The lifeblood of the universe. It's all there is anywhere. It's the only thing doing anything in any direction. It's the only thing that's ever been here. It's the only thing that's ever going to be here. Wow. Shivani and I went to Florida, and uh, we got introduced to, the, to this thing called energy exchange. I think, I think that's needed in this world. Um, but the biggest thing that prevents energy exchange, in my opinion, is honestly the thing called money. Do you, like what is the relationship between energy and money? Yeah. Money is a manipulative tool to start. Energy can be used to manipulate, but it's not manipulative to start. Um, if you have a certain amount of money, you can just buy someone else's time, you know, like really co-opt their entire focus of their mind for a certain number of hours, you know. Um, whereas I think energy, especially in energy exchange, it's usually given willingly, you know. You show up and you say, this is what I have to offer, and someone takes you up on that offer rather than you being like, I need resources, and the only way to get resources is with money, and I don't have any money, so I better start sacrificing, you know. Also, human energy cannot be stored in a bank vault. You can't amass more human energy than you can spend in a lifetime. You won't literally only have the human energy you can spend in a lifetime and nothing more and nothing less. You never will. Versus through, you know, by hook or by crook, you can amass a fortune of a billion dollars. That, that's unrealistic potential for any one human, you know, to exact change on their surroundings. Yeah, that, that happened at the beginning of, of trade, and that happened in the beginning of actual commerce. You know, back in the day, 
you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, you used to be able to hoard resources, but you'd have to like do it in the form of how many goats and pigs and chickens you had, and you'd had to take care of those or they would die and you'd lose your resources. You could hoard food, but you had to store that well or it would mold and you'd lose your resources. The moment that we switched over to coins, you can just throw those in a safe somewhere and come back a hundred years later and they'll still be what they are. So that storage and the, the potential to store and amass this manipulative resource is, I think, where all the poison comes from. So where do you think it's leading to right now? I think we are where it's leading to. Hopefully we lead away from where we're at because it's, it's pretty absurd the, uh, the amount of resources amassed in just a couple piles around the world, you know. Think of it as bank accounts and Swiss bank accounts and numbers, and it's all not backed by gold anymore, so who cares? So it doesn't look like much when you think about, you know, someone's bank account saying a billion dollars. It's just a couple numbers. But if you think about it as a pile of resources, it starts to look pretty gross. Are you, are you familiar with cryptocurrency? I am. So what are, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? It seems like a little bit of power back to the people kind of moment that immediately just got grabbed by the banks and the government, you know? Yeah, I think... I think you said it well. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm also curious. Um, you call yourself animal number nine, mm, right? Indeed. So animal number nine, what does that name mean to you, Garrett? It is the first name that rang true at all uh, when I thought about my art. Like, would I be willing to put my so- a song out under animal number nine? Would I be willing to put a poem out? Would I be willing to put a video of me teaching science to little kids out under animal number nine? And the answer was yes to all counts. Um, one, because I am an animal, very, very much so. I'm an intellectual animal, but I'm an animal, and I enjoy being an animal. It's fun. And number nine has just popped up in my life a lot, not in like a numerology way, in a way of like when I see it, it's beautiful, and it speaks to me. It looks like a spiral. And fractals are hypnotizingly interesting to me, you know, um, I see the universe as just one big fractal. A fractal is a self-similar equation that you can zoom in or out, and it looks basically the same no matter how deep or how shallow you go. And, I mean, indeed, deep and shallow are illusions when talking about a fractal. There's no beginning, there's no end. So that is the universe swirling itself out into different reflections of itself. The galaxy's one spiral. You get a spiral when you pull the plug on your sink and let the water go down, you know, same, same equation. So animal number nine to me is... A reflection of who I really am in in a way that all the other names that I could come I was in a band called Funk's Capacitor for a while and it's fun and we're funky and all but like Funk's Capacitor does not represent who I am inside you know animal number nine does I think it's a really powerful name and the content that you put out um, is really powerful and it's really unique uh, mm-hmm. and that's what I really like about your content and uh, when you just add animal number nine, and now that I know exactly what animal number nine is, I'm just going to look at that differently now, mm. which is really cool, the fact that you put a powerful name towards it. Right so, on. cool. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious. Um, why are you always talking about fractals? I mean, I know you did mention uh, mm-hmm. 
fractal and we also watched that one day we were downstairs where, where you literally brought me down to the studio and you're like just stare at it like yes. stare at this fractal and it's like zooming into it and it's like a never ending fractal and mm -hmm. it goes on and on and on and on mm -hmm. and on and it's just like if you keep looking at it is is really powerful how would you explain fractals to someone yeah. who has i know you mentioned it like mm -hmm. briefly but like if you like someone who has no clue what fractal is yeah. how would you explain that okay i will um and i would say the reason i keep talking about it and i talk i talk to you about it all the time so yeah. it's a fair question why am i always talking about fractals it's because it's more quality to talk about them than to not that's why i'm always talking about them uh, a fractal really is a mathematical feedback equation. A feedback loop is an equation where you say, um, like, f equals f plus c, where f is the function, it's the, the number. Function is equal to function plus an event. Something's happening to this function, and then you start back over on the other side of the equation. It really is the way that everything works. Um, it's the way that a seed works. It's the way that a river works. It's the way that evolution works. It's the way that everything works, you know. Um, I woke up today and I am Garrett. And I am my genetics plus everything that's ever happened to me up here in my mind. That's who I am, you know. And today is going to happen to me. So the function is Garrett. And after today, Garrett will be equal to Garrett plus this day. And then I'll wake up tomorrow and start again and I'll be just Garrett. But I'll then have another day. And that feedback is going to be, at the end of my life, the summation of who I am and the experiences I've had. It's the same with a tree. Uh, when a tree is young and bendy, all its branches are super bendy. If I come along and I grab one, well, let's, let's do the bird. I like the bird better. Let's say a bird comes along and lands on the branch and it bends the branch a little bit. The tree is always growing, isn't it? So it starts solidifying this new bent shape a little bit. Then the bird flies away, the branch snaps back, but it's never going to be the same. So at the end of its life, this tree is a product of its genetics, its DNA, plus every bird that's ever landed on its branches. Will, it, will there be a time where, like, fractal just stops? As long as the universe is here, it's spinning away and getting deeper into that fractal like the thing we watched. For those of you who want to watch this, it's called uh, Fractal Zoom Mandelbrot Set. Benoit Mandelbrot is the one who discovered fractal mathematics, really. Um, check him out. He's, he's a goofy-looking genius. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, you're, you're definitely an artist. I mean, I walked in. Uh, I didn't know that you were, I mean, I just knew that you wrote a book, you know, a little bit about music when I first saw you. And then I came to your studio and I was like, wow, you're filled with a bunch of different instruments. I we just got these crystal bowls. Here, you want these? <laughs> like, but you're, you're, you're an artist, but I'm curious. Um, I mean, who is your favorite artist and why? Michelangelo. Michelangelo Bonarotti, um, the guy who painted the Sistine Chapel and did uh, David and did uh, the Pieta. He did a ton of, ton of things. Um, but the vibrance in his work and the soul that he brought to everything he did, um, it's inspiring. It's very, very inspiring. I read The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone, which is a uh, biographical novel about Michelangelo's life. And Irving Stone is a historian. He studied for six years to write this, so it's tip-top A-plus work. And it really puts you in touch with Michelangelo. It starts when he's 13 years old, looking in the mirror by candlelight, drawing his face, and 
just being so forlorn at how misshapen he thinks his face is, you know. Whereas Da Vinci, one of his contemporaries, was like six foot tall, broad shouldered, and beautiful. Michelangelo was like five foot five, kind of scrawny. Um, and still he managed to sculpt these 18 foot tall statues of marble that just blew everyone's mind. So in the novel, you see Michelangelo really being devoted to God and searching for God and trying to represent God and show, show the real story of the universe to people as he saw it. You know, like I'm not specifically religious in any specific way, but as Michelangelo saw it, he was telling the story of the universe. And he would pour over the literature and just pour over the Bible looking for an intense scene somewhere where someone's being cast out of heaven or just the most intense scene he can find and he will draw those characters and study it and then he'll sculpt it and it just compared to other people's work everybody looks like a child next to Michelangelo yeah and when you study him mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day base I think you're modeling one of the most powerful beings that stepped on this planet when you look at when you look at a person like Michelangelo, that's how you pronounce his name, right? Michelangelo. 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 Um, what's going through that person's mind when they're delivering a, an art piece? It usually comes as a crystallized vision. At least for me, I think it was the same for Michelangelo, but it's hard to tell. Everybody works differently. Yeah. But yeah, the masters. I think they see it in their head and then they sketch it out and then they paint it. You know? I don't think there's a whole lot of like, well, I could see Michelangelo saying, oh Lord, please guide my hand and show me, show me the truth, you know. I could see that, but I do not know. Interesting, yeah. So how do I find who I'm supposed to become, Garrett? Mm. Easy, you listen. <laughs> yeah. Um, First things first, you gotta show up on the mat every day, uh, which you do, I know you do. Um, you gotta make practice fun, make showing up on the mat fun. Uh, try enough things to find the thing that makes your soul sing, you know? There's a lot of really good stuff you can do in the world and I've, you know, I've been through like writing poetry and then painting and then playing music and teaching science to little kids. And I know the two things for me are teaching science to little kids and making music. I know I'll still write. And, and I mean, writing is very important to me too, but the painting is really for fun at this point. While I was really learning to paint, I was like, okay, I'm going to express myself and I'll be able to change the world through my paintings, you know? Um, and I mean, I love Alex Gray and his work and he did change the world through his paintings, changed my life. So um, I had an example of someone who'd actually done that. But now that I say, like, I love painting, but I am not going to change the world with my painting. I have a chance to do it with teaching science and music, you know. So you have to try enough things, make the practice fun, and one day you'll kind of look back and go like, hey, look, there's my mission sitting right on the table in front of me. This is what I've been born to do, you know. And you'll know it when you find it. And if you don't know it, then you keep looking. I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have this, like, rainbow mm -hmm. light just on your cheeks. I yeah. think that's so cool. I know yeah. you mentioned it last time. That's why I put the uh, the prism there. <laughs> See, just a little bit of intention, and then you can have rainbows. I know. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Show me how to get united with my soul at all costs. You want to be united with your soul, do you? Of course. Hmm. 
know first you never left it. Two, this universe is like a womb, you know. <laughs> you familiar with the song Aerials by System of a Down? Life is a waterfall, you're one in the river and one again after the fall. That means is you're one in the river heading to the waterfall, you're one with the universe and everything, and then as you go over the waterfall, the water splits into individual drops, and now you're a thing, you've got an ego, you're, you're separate for just the waterfall, and you live your whole life, and then you get to the bottom and you're one again after Ooh. you die. Life is a waterfall, you're one in the river, one again after the fall. So if you want to get united with your soul, appreciate the whole universe as being one thing, one big fractal. It's one big ball of energy going and changing into a bunch of different forms. It's one thing. E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light. Everything made of mass is made of energy. Everything not made of mass is made of energy. There is only energy. So your soul is a little water droplet of this energy. When you know that, it becomes much easier to sit with it and be your little, big, awesome, amazing shard of the universe for the time that you have. So if, we're, if, if we understand this, we're one with all. Why is there so much cacophony in the world? Not everyone understands it. And even if you do understand fully, sometimes existing can be painful and hard. Just because you know you're one with the universe doesn't mean that you get to escape pain all the time. What is the difference between subconscious mind and a conscious mind? So everyone's got a subconscious and a conscious mind. The subconscious mind is all the programming and past memories that really give context to all of your experiences. Um, like you have so many programs from childhood running right now just so you can understand what I'm saying and you understand my posture and little things. The conscious mind is where you get to start using logic and making decisions to go left and right, even though there's a free will debate in there that I don't really care to have right now. Um, but I think the question you're really asking is what's the difference between a, a, like just someone's regular conscious and an awake conscious, right? Yep. So an awake conscious comes with a couple steps. One of them is recognizing that you can have an idea without accepting it. You can think about something without it being who you are. Um, being able to discard old beliefs and grow is a major, major thing about getting to a second level human. Um, it's akin to thinking about thinking. That's metacognition. I also think that's second level human fodder. Um, if you can think about your thought process, then when you start to get angry, you can get up in there and move some thoughts around and not be angry, which is literally changing the release of cortisol and stress hormones. Um, it's changing the thoughts that follow. You know, so if you something happens and I'm about to get angry and I'm able to sidestep that anger, then the next stream of thoughts that pop up aren't going to be ones that, you know, so closely follow that anger impulse, which is great. I just changed my reality. You know, my reality is the thoughts flowing through my head, really, you know. So if I'm able to get control over that, huge step up. You can you can spend 20 seconds being angry instead of 20 days, you know. Um, honestly, learning how to really eat is surprisingly, in the world we live in right now, a, a mark of a second-level human. Um, 
And then I would say, yeah, the, the yoga meditation cycle, if you want to call it that, you know, you got to take care of your body and your mind as though they were like your car taking it in for an oil change or, or your guitar changing the strings or, you know, oiling it up, polishing it. You have to take care of both those things. And I think that's, that's how you wake up, you know. It's not, I don't think being awake is finding your life's purpose. I think that's an awake mind who also is lucky enough to have found their life's purpose. But waking up is a lot of taking control of your own mind and stop being such a passenger all the time. So once a person's fully awake and uh, it's about constantly like fueling it with the right energy. <laughs> yeah, once you, once you wake up, then you're, you're in the light of your life then you live and enjoy and help people and love and show compassion and then you die, you know? There is no like, I don't think there's like a big button to press at the top of the mountain where you get to go huzzah and then fireworks start banging around, you know? It's, yeah. <laughs> you wake up and then you get to walk as an awake human and be in the world. So uh, how do you know who's awake and who's not? You can usually tell by looking them in the eyes. So once, I feel like a lot of people are heading towards being awakened. I think that's that's such a common thing that I hear is like, how could I, oh, this person's awakened, this person's not awakened. It's, that's the reason I ask. I feel like in order for a person to be awakened, they have to have a really crystal clear mission. Okay. Maybe, I may be wrong, uh, or a purpose here on earth. Um, they need to fully understand their purpose here on earth. So, I mean, how can one have a crystal clear mi mission? Hmm. That goes back to, uh, like, who you want to become. And it really is show up on the mat and you, you just listen. Just freaking listen, you know. We were talking earlier about hearing the painting sing, you know. And the universe will sing to you if you polish your perceiving apparatus and you show up and you listen. It will. That's how you find your crystal clear mission. Nice. Ninja Science Academy. Hmm. Two weeks ago, we took the shot of you breaking that birdhouse. Birdhouse, yeah. and it said the real NSA. Mm -hmm. Why do we do that? Why do we do the real NSA, aka the Zenodyne Ninja Science Academy? Well, um, I have my own curriculum and way of thinking about the universe, and it's been pretty wonderful to teach it to children so far and I'd like my own company where I teach my own curriculum and I will eventually hire instructors and teach them my way of teaching and then send them out and disseminate my information out into the world so that's the plan and I love the name Ninja Science Academy because I do believe that you should use science to move with the universe like a ninja you know um, and I mean you should move softly elegantly and accurately through the world anyway and I think that's what a ninja is so it was just it's been the name in my head for a while maybe as much as a year and then I find Shivani who is a <laughs> legitimate ninja both of you are and she's certified to train or she's certified to teach kids martial arts so I teach science she teaches martial arts and we officially have ourselves a ninja science academy curriculum I think it's a really cool name NSA when you ask kids hey there's four clubs you can sign up for after school. Do you want to sign up for Young Rembrandts and do art, Mad Science and do science, uh, chess club and do chess, or do you want to sign up for the Ninja Science Academy? And guess which one they're signing up for. Yeah, Zenodyme, right? Say, yep. Mm -hmm. What really attracted you about Zenodyme, and uh, where do you see Zenodyme 10 years from now? 
What attracted me about Zenodyme, uh, apart from both of your beautiful faces, uh, is the crystal singing bowls. I've never seen anything like them. Uh, when you play it for just, you ding it once and it's startling. You really rub the mallet around the outside and get that frequency up to its maximum volume and it's shocking the first time. You really cannot believe that all of the sound is coming from this thing that looks like it's sitting so still, you know? So in that way, I mean, I, I generally chase the feeling of awe. I like to feel uh, blown away by the universe and I chase that feeling and those, those crystal bowls give me that feeling. On top of that, they're healing. And I generally have had pretty good experiences bringing light into people's life when they need it, you know? So healing is something I'm drawn to naturally. Um, I've never taken a leadership role in it like I have at this point and I'm enjoying that. So um, the singing bowls, you guys, and the first day that we came here and made a video, the product that we produced in our first like session together was good enough for me to want to do it again, the like, very next day, you know? So I think the real thing that drew me to Zenodyme was just the experience of being part of Zenodyme. It was so nice and so fulfilling that doing anything else seemed ludicrous, you know? Yeah. Garrett the TripAdvisor. <laughs> right. Where will we be in 10 years with Zenodyme? I would like to be, my intention is to have, uh, for many years at that point, I would like to have, by next year, I would like to be, have instructors under us teaching my science curriculum, possibly even martial arts un instructors under Shivani teaching her curriculum. I'd like to branch out from what she's certified into jujitsu and other forms of martial arts and have those trainers on, on board as well. And I would like to have many clients for private sound healing for birth, you know, the sound healing doula stuff that Shivani's going to do. I'd like to have nailed that down and possibly have more than one sound healing doula going and doing that for Zenodyne. So that's that's my plan. That's my one-year plan. Ten-year plan, you know, ask me in a year. <laughs> I think that sounds so cool. Yeah. If you were to explain the mission of Zenodyne into like a couple sentences, how would you explain the mission of Zenodyne? Create a community of healers and educators to change the world. Heal the world. Educate the world. Show all those kids what atoms are and that they actually can just be quiet and ding a singing bowl and relieve stress from their body, mind, and life. So, I, I mean, I asked you a bunch of questions outside of today. I mean, I think you told me to like literally slow down multiple times uh, because of the amount of questions I ask you and how fast my mind goes half the times. But, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, why are you suggesting me to slow down? So when you slow down, the thought processes in your mind have more time to kind of reach out and feel for possibilities when you are constructing a sentence. This allows for less mistakes. It allows for a higher variety of opportunity in each sentence. I think it allows you to be a little more creative because you give yourself time to weigh more options before selecting a path. And that's just with speaking. Slowing down while listening is almost doubly important you know I think a lot of people hear the first couple words of someone's sentence if even that and then start running around in their own head like starting to construct some sort of response and it's usually in my experience in error because most of the time you have to just throw out your response and, and start to craft a new response because by the time they get to the end of what they're saying you realize that you didn't know what they were going to say 
And so instead of really listening, you've now only half listened. And so you're now giving your, you're struggling to make your response at the end with only half the information because you didn't really pay attention in the first place, you know. So both listening and speaking get better when you slow down. And I think there's a lot of pressure to go fast from the outside world. Uh, we came up with that um, speed up, you don't deserve this, you know, and we switched it to slow down, you deserve this. Whew. Yeah. It's a and, powerful word. And that feels nice, doesn't it? Because going slow, there is pleasure in, in moving slowly. I don't move slow all the time, but when I do, <laughs> it's wonderful, you know? You're slowing everything down. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool. It's really cool, actually. I mean, I've been able to, like, notice it, and uh, ever since I've been practicing slowing down, I've been preaching it a lot, and mm -hmm. when I start to preach, I start to analyze stuff, and it really influences me, influenced me as a person, and I feel like that energy just sparked up the second I slowed down, and it's nice. Well, and there's another way of, of looking at the, the value of slowing down. If you're riding your bike, like imagine you're riding your bike along a wonderful path through like a forest, you know, and you're moving pretty quick and it's lovely and the wind's on your face and the smells, there's so many smells because you're moving so fast. It's, it's a nice feeling, right? Now, change that to like running along the path. You're not moving quite as fast. You can see a little bit more of your surroundings and now go walk. Now you're walking and you can see individual leaves you might notice a squirrel that you hadn't noticed before. You might even stop and look at the veins on the leaves of one of the trees and see that they look like rivers and see, oh, right, the fractal is all around me. The fractal is in this one tiny leaf. And then you might look up and see all of the leaves on this tree and be in awe. And you might look around at the forest and realize every leaf is like that. And then you have this really strong, shocking feeling of awe because you are moving slow enough to see it. Mm-hmm. That is how gratitude. Huh. Is speed, is the amount of gratitude you're able to show at an inverse relationship to the speed you're moving? The slower you are, the more grateful you can be? Seems like that might be true. Hmm. Uh, well, you do get more data, just period. You know, like when you're riding your bike, or let's say you're going 200 miles an hour in uh, Bugatti or something, you're trying to look at the prairie next to you, uh, you only get 24 pictures a second in your, and your eyes take 24 pictures, a, well, your brain takes 24 pictures a second and turns it into a flip book, and that's your reality, you know? So when you look out the window, if you're moving 200 miles an hour, there's not a lot of data in each of those pictures, yeah. you know? So how are you supposed to be grateful for it when you can't even... See it. Yeah, interesting. I'm going to plumb that idea a little bit over the next couple of weeks. That's, that one seems like it deserves attention. Yeah, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In times like this, how does one practice technology detox? Hmm. I mean, you're really good at fasting, you know? Like, you, you fast all the time, <laughs> dry fast even. And I'm willing to bet there are some days where you're like, oh, man, I'm really hungry, you know? That's got to happen to you, right? It's been slowing down. Okay, but you're familiar with the feeling of yes. you're not going to do, you're denying yourself this for the day because of all these wonderful reasons, and you feel the desire for the thing. Of course. The same thing happens with the phone. You just got to import the programs that you're using regarding food and just copy-paste them onto your technology programs. So for someone who is, like, let's say, like, bombarded uh, with a bunch of apps, and they're just, like, they're just, like, literally surrounded by apps on their phone. Yeah, but don't you do that? I do. Well, what I mean is, didn't you do that to yourself? Yeah. So what are you asking? 
I had a conversation with my dad and my mom about like how to clean our phone up to the point where it's like when we're going on our phone, the first thing is not what we see is Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook. They're used to doing the scrolling thing with their hand. They're mm-hmm. so used to doing their scrolling. They're, they're like well, they're unconsciously doing this now, like while, while they're watching TV. And I feel like that's when we go back to being present where like, let's say someone's talking to them on the, like, like they're, t- they're talking, but they have their phone on them. But next thing you know, they're scrolling mm-hmm. because their mind is literally just telling them to scroll. You do know that all those companies that made those apps, like the big companies, they invested a ton of money optimizing that pull. They've spent almost all their money trying to get people to stay on the site and scroll. That's where all their money goes. And for me, that that seems almost malicious to me, almost like a little mind virus. And so I have, I've built up walls against it because it seems gross to me. But that's, again, that's like seeing how the engine works in a car. Give it, you become aware of it, you understand it, and then you can appreciate and, and really decide how to move with it, you know? So if you understand that Facebook and Instagram have spent probably billions of dollars on, uh, what are they, um, not predictive programming, but it's... Uh, it's called maximizing time on site, but the notifications and those little things and just everything, all of that is geared at one thing, and that is retain, pulling, holding, and keeping your focus. And to me, that's, that's like scary. It's like, so like every time I'm on Facebook, I'm, I go on there to communicate, like talk to mindfulness with Mika and stuff like that. But other than that, like the moment I, and I still do it, even though I'm, I'm who I am, I still scroll for a second and I feel just the dump of poison. And then I get not like scared, but like grossed out, repulsed, you know, uh, and that pushes me away from it. The mic energy. Yeah, so maybe maybe understanding a little more just how manipulative the people who made those apps really are would be uh, a nice thing to help push you away from it, you know, and decrease your willingness to give it your focus. So in an, in an ideal world, um, if you were to look at social media, where do you see social media 10 years from now in the positive direction? Mm. Take the word social out of it. Give it back to people who deserve the airtime. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it used to be, uh, man, it's not good. It's it's just not good in the, in the Plato sense of the word. It's put too many faces in front of us and changed our expectation of entertainment, which it was already way out of bounds. Our, our expectation of entertainment was way out of bounds before Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. We were entertaining ourselves to death in the 80s. And now we're just like, beep, beep, 10 seconds of dopamine, beep, beep. And the gross thing is, do, like, let's say you have a dopamine meter and 10 out of 10 is like blistering solo at the end of a Pink Floyd concert or like just, just went over the highest drop on a roller coaster. You just got launched into space you know, 10 out of 10, you know, um, people are settling for three out of 10 dopamine for their whole life. Now, these little TikTok videos, <laughs> so cute. That's a three out of 10 bump. And it's satisfactory enough to get people through their days. It's almost like lust. That's how I see it. It's lust for the little dopamine happy hit, you know, and the problem is there are major, major companies who've invested billions, billions of dollars on giving us that little hit as often as we could possibly want. 
Whatever our little heart's desire is, it's right there in the phone. Just pick it up, push a button, and it'll go ding, 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 and like throw fake coins up on the screen, and you get your little three out of ten dopamine bump, and then stay up till three in the morning tracing three out of ten dopamine bumps instead of getting a good night's rest, going out in the sun, and getting a five out of ten dopamine bump from a freaking yoga pose and a couple deep breaths with your feet in the grass. That's what is being traded right now for those little dopamine bumps, those little notifications. That's what Facebook and Instagram have done. So as an entrepreneur, I see that as a problem. I see that as a huge problem. So how do we cure it? Hmm. Zenodyme holistic healing, brother. <laughs> we gotta <laughs> remind we gotta remind people that eating good is easy if you have access. I mean I realize people live in food deserts, but going to the grocery store and buying the good food and cooking it is cheaper, tastier, and takes less time than all that other stuff. I don't know if it takes less time than a frozen pizza, but I shouldn't have to argue for you why that frozen pizza is poison, you know. Wow, so yeah, one atom at a time. Well, that's, the, that's why I wanna teach five-year-olds, you know. If I could teach five-year-olds that they're all made of atoms and that then they love their neighbor as themselves, um, they will grow up feeling more connected. And I think the, and I'm not saying I never eat frozen pizzas or anything. I'm saying when I eat a frozen pizza, I usually give myself permission to do that because I'm already feeling disconnected. You know, it doesn't feel like a real thing. And it is real, it's all real. And I want to teach kids that so they can grow up and do a better job than we are currently doing right now. It starts in the womb too, like when a person, like sound, which is kind of cool how we're directing doing everything. Doing sound healing in the sound. womb, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful. I mean, well, and Kaylee. Uh, so we just, for those of you listening, we just shot our first commercial with Lauren and her daughter Kaylee, who Shivani did sound healing for during their birth, a week prior during the birth and then a couple weeks after. And Kaylee is just a calm little bundle of joy. Um, Zenodyme's not going to take too much credit for that because everybody is born with their own personality and whatnot. But uh, Lauren's other child was born in a considerably more chaotic scenario, and he is a chaotic little bundle of joy. Um, and Kaylee is just the soul of composure at, uh, at a month and a half old. So it does begin in the womb and, and sound healing is one of the ways that one of our doulas, Robin Ross mentioned that you're born into sound healing. It helps to stimulate the creative part of the mind rather than the fight or flight and fear part of the mind, um, which is a much better way to start your life. I love it. <laughs> uh, so one day I wanna publish a book it's called, What Advice Would You Give to Your Younger Self? That's something uh, I wanna, I, I mean, it's just, it's just a bucket list. Uh, when, because I do see myself getting really, really involved in uh, interviewing elite trainers from all over the world and take them to exotic locations. But what advice would you give to your younger self, Garrett? Hmm. It's interesting, I feel a bit of a conundrum because I'm so happy with who I am today that I feel like I wouldn't want my younger self to change anything. But that being said, we've already talked about the progression of awareness to understanding to appreciation or satisfaction. That to me is such a big secret and it changed my life so much that I wonder if I wouldn't tell it to myself a little younger than I discovered. I came up with it probably when I was 23 and I just realized Man, you cannot understand something if you're not aware of it. And you can't appreciate it if you don't understand it. I think I was eating an apple. I became fully aware of this apple 
and how it came from a tree that came from a seed that came from a tree that came from a seed. And I watched it run back in evolution thousands of years. And then I watched it run back into just like the first plants. And then I watched the planet Earth kind of turn back into hot lava and like break up into the original accretion disk that was our, our, the disk of particles and gases and dusts that was our solar system, which is just a small, smaller tiny disk inside the big disk that is our galaxy and I watched it all just zoom back to the beginning of the universe and like go back reverse through the big bang and collapse into just the one tiny little point of all the energy in the universe and that was my apple and I became aware I became aware that my awareness that this is how that happened allowed me to understand this apple deeper and then I took a bite of it and it was the most satisfying bite of an apple I've ever had in my life and it was because my awareness allowed me to understand it deeper, which allowed me to appreciate it to a higher level and gain satisfaction. And that's everything, you know? Even like, you can do the same thing with both of us right now, all the way back to the beginning of the universe. And doesn't it make sitting here talking to each other just much more beautiful? Yeah, because we see each other's past. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same past. When it's the same past. <laughs> star, star, it's like this little teeny yeah. tiny dot. And it's... Wow, some people don't even, my imaginary characters probably don't even understand what gravity is. Right, well, and so, <laughs> like, so what I would say, so. what I would say to my, my younger self and what I will instead say to you is try doing that progression three times today. Maybe when you're driving, become aware of the car and how fast it's moving and go through how much you really understand about it. You don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of the universe, but think about how much you understand. That's the metacognition, the thinking about thinking. Um, and then notice how, how you feel. Because the appreciating should not be a willful act. It's not something you have to do. The appreciation is almost like the summary of the feeling you get after you become aware and then you understand something. Then it's almost like your chest pops open and a little crystal comes out and that is your appreciation. And it is whatever size and color that you get. I don't think you're supposed to force appreciation. I think what that is is then going back to the level of understanding and, and trying to understand it further to increase the appreciation, you know? But it's an exercise that I think that I think is integral to everybody. Everybody should be doing this. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Mm-hmm. I, it is powerful. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. I appreciate that. <laughs> what can you make? How can you make the most out of your hundred-year life? Ask it again. Don't read it. Just look at me. Just yeah. So an average average time span of a human being is I would I'm it's eighty two it's eighty two years eighty two years all right let's just say eighty two years so how can you make the most out of your eighty two year life? Hmm. Well, I do think that there are several waking up points in a person's life. Like when you're two, three years old, I don't think you're really super responsible for the decisions you're making or like what's going on in your life, you know? I think you start waking up sometime around 10, between like 10 and 12. I think you have your first like waking up point, you know, um, where you kind of become conscious and start to use your intention and your will in ways that seem to give you some sort of individuality, some sort of identity. Um, prior to that, in like second and third grade, you're still, you're still just a little kid, you know, um, and the universe is kind of happening to you. So once you start to wake up a little bit, it really does go back to studying and perfecting the body and mind. Um, 
because it really is like a clawing your way out of the depths of the ocean to get your head above water. I think that's what the awake consciousness is, is everybody else is just kind of floating around, just doing this, doing that, and then there's some people who see a light up above and they're clawing their way to the surface. And once you pop your head out and awake, then you're awake, you know. Like I said, you kind of start walking on the mountain. Maybe, maybe you come out and then you see land. You swim to land and then you find a mountain and climb it. Uh, but that's, that's the goal. And it, that clawing to the surface is training. It's the showing up. It's nice to have a mentor. I don't think you need one, but it helps. And using your intention to seek out a teacher, I think, is almost like a scuba tank or like a rocket boost that can help you get to the, the surface better, you know. So the goal is to, well, my goal is to wake up as many 10-year-olds as possible and then give them the keys to the universe and, and then they can go walk, you know. So it's almost like a, a forcible wake up. But 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, they don't usually have that passion, you know. If they do, then they're one in a million. So you got your first waking up point and you start training and then you wake up again at like 20. And right around 20 is when you start asking yourself what you want to do with your life. And so instead of just having intention and using it casually to some real benefit, you start to want to use all of your intention in, in like a direction. And that is when I think the training kicks into high gear. That's when metacognition and thinking about thinking about thinking becomes the most valuable because it's so easy to get lost in our world. There's so many options. I could be a chemical engineer right now or a nuclear physicist, and I'm so glad that I'm not. So once you realize that you are woken up at the level where you are ready to use your intention to really make a difference, that is when you need to start, if you haven't already, trying out all the possibilities and waiting for your soul and the universe to kind of vibrate together and so you hear the singing and you find your life's purpose. Other than that, everything along the way is useful stuff to put in your tool bag like this awareness to understanding to appreciation, that's a useful tool, like a screwdriver in your tool bag. Um, meditation, meditation's more like changing the strings on your guitar than it is like, like the screwdriver, you know. So amass your tool bag. Learn to really understand yourself and watch yourself fail. That's what I think yoga, the asanas in yoga is best for, is watching yourself fail because it happens in such a real way that you have to acknowledge. If you've fallen out of the posture, you have fallen out of the posture that you can't talk yourself out of it. And then you get to watch yourself fail and sometimes be angry and get to deal with that and really know yourself. And that's when you become more like a tool of the universe than like uh, ego floating around trying to get praise and joy and love. And once you do that, I think you're on the path. Then you're moving and you live your life. You learn and listen. I have a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. You recently wrote uh, your first medicine song, which I fell in love with. I, I, the second I heard it, I felt so driven to just sharing why, because it's a medicine song. And uh, whenever I'm dealing with a medicine song, I literally just, or anything in general that's like feeding me, I just feel drawn to sharing. And I feel like that will lead the world in the right direction. And I feel like the one thing that world does need is medicine the right medicine so if you could feed uh, feed the whole world with this medicine song that would be an honor mm. 
Yeah, yes it would. Did you see the video I posted? Yes. Yeah. So writing it was wonderful. Uh, as you well know, I wrote it with you sitting right there. Um, and I said to myself, I had just heard my first medicine song the day before, sung by a shaman, wonderful man named Sal. And it, I was struck by how the song really was for medicine and not for entertainment. It was not there to entertain you. It was not going to try to. And if you were looking for entertainment, feel free to go elsewhere. This is for healing, you know? And just give listeners kind of example of what it sounded like. It was something along the lines of like, The earth is beneath your feet. Mother earth is beneath your feet. And then a couple other lines, little melody changes, but, you know, pretty droning and soothing and, and repetitive. And I wanted to create something like that. So sitting by the fireplace with Sahil and I played a single note on the guitar. And I think I'll include a little bit of the song at the end of this podcast, just so you guys can not wonder so much. Um, but I hit one note on the guitar. And I was like, yeah, that works. And then I changed to, I went from a G to a C chord and immediately I lost the feeling of the medicine song. It just started to feel like a regular song. And so I realized that I'm not supposed to change chords. I hit the G and then I put a C chord on top of that G note and kept the G droning. And it really just felt like a medicine song all of a sudden. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I went, oh, found my note. And I looked at you, Sahil, and I said, what do I want to sing to Brother Sahil? What do I want to say to <laughs> yeah. him? And then Thich Nhat Hanh's meditation, um, he's got many, but this one changed my life. I wrote it on a piece of paper and taped it up next to my bed on the wall for a year. Did it every day and woke me up considerably. Um, it just came pouring out of my mouth. And when I was done, I think I had tears in my eyes. I felt like I had sang it for you. I had sang it for me. I sang it for Ross. I sang it for Ross's dog scout and everyone had benefited from this, this thing that I just, I had gotten out of the way and let come through me, uh, which is always the best. And so, yeah, I feel very fulfilled. It's kind of the only song I want to play right now. Every time I pick up the guitar, I'm just right there. I had band practice the other night, and we play, like, funk rock and a bunch of, like, real heavy stuff. And I was kind of like, you guys just want to play meditation music? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but we, we rocked it. Um, and I'm happy about the song. Uh, the song is called Breathing In. You can find it on my YouTube at uh, Animal Number 9 on YouTube. Um, if you search Breathing In or Medicine Song Animal 9, you will find it. Last question. Mm -hmm. How can people find you? Me. Well, I'm here in Aurora if you want to come. Aurora, Illinois, if you want to come hang out and get your healing on. We have sound healing events here where we make everybody good, light, organic food. And uh, you can meet a lot of really special healers here. You know, we're only having like 10 people over right now because of the times. But you could come get your heal on, meet a community of people who is really on the up and up, spreading the light and, and living the way I think we all really want to live. So contact us through Zenodyme and come on down, get your heel on. Well, I enjoyed that very much. Hopefully you did too. Many thanks to Brother Sahil for coming out with a great list of questions. We talked about pretty much all of my favorite subjects. You know where to find us, Zenodyme.com. Thanks for listening. Breathing in, you are breathing out. Oh.
are a flower. You feel refreshed. You are a flower.